0: Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you. I'm having to get used to seeing faces again. I like that. I like that. It's not that I, you know, I was glad we had the live stream and that we still are live streaming on Sundays and Wednesdays for a while longer, but it's just good to look out there and see, see flesh and blood again. Luke chapter 17 this morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. We want to look at this chapter uh, and see it from this perspective. Serving in light of eternity. Because this whole series throughout the Gospel of Luke is really centered on what does it mean to serve the Lord and how should we be serving the Lord and, and what is God teaching us about being servants of the Lord Uh, in these times in which we live. And we saw last week, especially at the end, where Jesus uh, gave us the reality of heaven and hell and eternity, And how Jesus says eternity is coming fast and furious. It's it's like a freight train that's coming down the tracks and all of us are headed for eternity. And, And are we really living and serving the Lord in light of that? I mean, even the word of God tells us to teach us, Lord, about our own mortality so that we can live more wisely. And in a sense, that's what last week was about. How do we live wisely in, in, uh, in the reality of our own mortality. And now, how do we serve more wisely? And I want to divide this chapter up into four sections. Uh, each section I've summarized with sort of a one-word summary of each section, especially for those of you that sort of like to connect things by, by using word associations or if you're taking notes. So the first one is sufficiency, sufficiency. The second one is contentment, the third one is thankfulness, and the fourth one is urgency. These are all ways in which you and I should be serving in light of eternity. Let's first look at sufficiency. Notice in chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, Stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck than to be thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. Watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times returns to you saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, I'm cutting through a lot here, but here's what Jesus is saying. Living in light of eternity also means living for what really matters. And what really matters and has always mattered to God and should to us is relationships. At the end of the day, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, that's what really matters. And notice then Jesus is saying here, boy, navigating relationships is not easy, is it? I mean, we're going to be offended, we're going to offend others through our lives... Uh, we're going to need forgiveness. We're going to be needing to give and extend forgiveness, all of these things, in order to do relationships properly and, and to, to do them well and to do them in a God-honoring way, okay? And it's, it's, it's challenging. I mean, you know, how, how do we do you know, things like marriage, and how do we handle the parent-child-child-parent relationship? How do we do friendships? How do we do partnerships with even our brothers and sisters in Christ in ministry or out there in the world? How how do we navigate all this? And Jesus lays all this down and is basically saying, it's not easy, but the reaction of those that were following him says to him in verse 5, well, then, Lord, you got to increase our faith. You you got to if 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 this is what the standard is, if this is what we need to do, that we lead, need to live in accountability to one another, and and ask for forgiveness, and seek forgiveness, and give forgiveness, and seek not offending, and not causing people to follow us, but to follow you, and 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 the influence that we can have on one another, both positively and negatively. Then God, you've got to increase our faith. Notice Jesus' response. He replied in verse 6, If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this black mulberry tree, be pulled out by the roots and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. In other words, Jesus saying, It's not the size of our faith that's most important. It is the object of our faith. Everyone lives by faith. Even non-Christians entrust themselves to other things or other people or institutions or whatever. We all live by faith. Okay? You got in your car this morning to come here. You had faith that you turned the key over. It was going to start. That's faith, okay? And all God says in his word is that all faith placed in anything or anyone outside himself will eventually disappoint us. That he is the only one that is all-sufficient. That he's the only one that has all the answers, and can empower us to do what we need to do. And in this context, then, notice, he's talking about relationships. And he's saying to us as servants, you need to live knowing that God is all-sufficient, that he is our sufficiency. It doesn't need to be a lot of faith, because it's not the quantity of our faith that is most important. God says that. It is the object. It is knowing then that in each and every turn and situation in life, especially navigating relationships with one another, you and I just have to turn to God and go to Him, knowing He's got the answers and He will empower me and give me the grace to to do these relationships in a God-honoring way as I serve Him. But He's the only sufficient one, you see. Think about it. Even as Christians, we struggle with this. Why? Because when it comes to navigating things like friendships and how to do them well and and marriage and partnerships and friendships and all that, many times, even as Christians, we look outside of God for those answers. And none of us will ever be able to stand before God and say, God, you didn't give me enough in your word to be able to do marriage well. He's going to say, no, you just didn't pay attention to it. We're never going to be able to stand before God and say, God, you didn't give me what I needed to be a good parent to my children. I said, no, you just didn't pay attention to it because I wasn't sufficient. Or God, I, you didn't give me what I needed to be a good child in that child-parent relationship. Or God, you didn't give me what I needed to be a good friend to others or a good partner to others. No, God would say... I gave you everything you needed. Either you weren't looking to me because I wasn't sufficient enough for you, or you were looking outside of me for those answers that only I can give you, and only the power that I can give you to do those relationships well. So the first thing we learn here then in Luke 17 is if we're going to serve in light of eternity, we've got to be servants of the Lord and followers of the Lord that look to the Lord, especially when it comes, in this context, How do we do relationships with each other? Knowing that God is all-sufficient. Our sufficiency is in Him. And we don't need to have a big amount of faith. Jesus said, you can have faith the size of a mustard seed, which means it could be infinitesimally small, but if you have your faith in me and you're looking to me, then you'll get the right answers and you'll get the power that you need to be able to do these relationships well. Sufficiency. Second, contentment that's how I'm summarizing verses 7 through 10 and it's actually a very interesting passage look at it with me he said would any one of you say to your slave who comes in from the field after plowing or shepherding sheep come at once and sit down for a meal won't the master instead say to him get my dinner ready make yourself ready to serve me while I eat and drink and then you may eat and drink He won't thank the slave because he did what he was told, will he? So you too, when you've done everything you were commanded to do, should say, we are simply slaves, undeserving of special praise. We have only done what was our duty. Here, Jesus is saying to his servants, to us even today, we need an attitude check, an attitude check when it comes to serving the Lord. And let me start by saying this. What Jesus here is sort of of, of focusing on is two negative extremes. The one negative extreme was illustrated a few weeks ago, and we didn't really go into it at the time, but if you know the story of the prodigal son, the one extreme is illustrated by the older brother, not the prodigal, but the older brother in that story. You see, because he never left home. He stayed with his father. He was there all the time. He wasn't the one that ran out and wasted all of the money and all that stuff. But the thing is, even though he stayed in that house and he was with his father, as he interacted with his father, as he served on that estate, if you will, as, as part of the you know, responsibility and all of that, as a son there and all of that, he did it primarily out of duty and obligation. It became drudgery to him. He didn't really love the father any more than the prodigal did when he first left the house. It's just he stayed, but his father really wasn't the object of love and value and worth to him, even though he stayed, you see. And, and he sort of just did things because he had to. It wasn't because he really wanted to. It wasn't because he really loved the father, you see. And that's why even when you come to that story, you can't say, well, the prodigal was wrong, but the one who stayed behind. No, they were both wrong for a time. They both were wrong. In fact, we find out in that story that the older brother who actually stayed at home and never left was actually in a worse spiritual state than the one who left and repented and came back with a different heart. So that's the one extreme. And so Jesus would be saying in other places, like there, be careful that as we serve the Lord, it doesn't get to the point where we've, we're doing things, but there's no love there of why we're doing it. Well, we're not doing it because we love the Lord. We're doing it out of duty and obligation. It's become tradition. It's become routine. It, it's just become part, but we're not getting any joy out of it anymore and all of that, Jesus says, be careful of that. But here he's also saying this, be careful that we don't go to the other extreme. And that is that every time we do something, we expect God to do something for us in a certain way. In other words, that service to God is always a means to an end. Now, here's the deal it's not that God doesn't lavish blessings upon us, He does. And he always gives us more than we deserve. Amen? Amen. In, In fact, if God stopped doing anything for us at this point in our life, if he never blessed us one more time throughout the rest of eternity, what he's already given us in Christ is more than we deserve. You see? So, it's not like God doesn't do that But Jesus is saying, be careful that you don't in your mind sort of start doing things as a servant of the Lord saying, well, if I do this for God, then God should do this for me. Because our relationship and our service to God is not a quid pro quo type of relationship where somehow we then end up putting God under obligation to us. And because we you know, we're so faithful in this, and we did this and this. Then we looked at God and say, now, God, you should reward me in this way, because the reason why that's dangerous is God doesn't always reward or bless us the way we think he should or how he should or in the timing that he should. And then if we have that kind of mindset, which is not good, and God doesn't come through for us in the way that we think he should come through for us and reward us in our service, then we become very disillusioned with God. And then God sort of, you know, he He didn't do me right. And therefore... We start to get into a very unhealthy place between us and God. That's what he's saying here. You see, he's saying that believers should willingly live under Christ's authority as devoted followers, being contented servants, serving God in humility and gratitude and love and joy, and saying, God, you've already given me enough. I'm good. I'm content. I don't need any more from you. And here's the thing, God will still give more because we cannot give God. But if we could learn, as Paul said, to be content and not always be serving with, now, God, what are you going to do for me? And that's, that's what Jesus is trying to get across here. You know, the servant that came in from the field, they were simply doing what they... And he says, you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do anyway. You know, Isn't that what you're supposed to do? So why are you expecting any special, you know, kind of acknowledgement? And yet we know, and maybe we've been there, but we know others in the church and and Christians who it's like, if they don't get stroked constantly, if they don't get patted on the back constantly, if they don't get affirmed constantly and all that, they don't serve. And all I can tell you is, yeah, if if that's how you have to be motivated and inspired to serve the Lord, then you won't be serving for a while. Because none of us as human beings probably feel like we get the, you know, the accolades and the affirmation and the applause and all of that that we should. The problem is we've already gotten from God more than we could ever deserve. And God is just saying to us here, be careful, the first aspect of serving God in light of eternity is sufficiency. The second is contentment. God, I have enough. I'm good. Third, thankfulness. Verse 11, now on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance They were practicing social distancing. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's that's true. And you realize in that culture, in that culture, because I say that only because you may think that this practice is the first time that's ever been happened in history. Oh my goodness, no. You realize lepers in Jesus' day had to keep a distance. And if they got too close or you got too close to them, I mean, that was, no, that just didn't happen. They had to stay so far away because you might, you know, get infected. So they stood at a distance. And then they met him. And they raised their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now that very title is in a sense a title of faith, saying, God, we're looking to you. We we believe that you are who you have claimed to be and that you can help us. And when he saw them, because Jesus doesn't miss a thing, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests." Now, what he was doing there was calling them to faith even further in him because he hadn't healed them yet. He's saying, as we're going to see here in a minute, you have the faith in me that I will heal you as you go and show yourself to the priest. Why go and show yourself to the priest? Because if they were to enter back into society, if they were to be able to give up social distancing and not stay apart from others, They had to be declared cleansed by a priest, cured and cleansed, and then they would enter back into society. So the only way they could do that was not from Jesus' authority, even though as the Son of God, he had that authority. And that culture... Only the priests would be the recognized authority to be able to grant these lepers to be able to get back in there and start pressing the flesh with other human beings. And so he says, go and show yourself to the priests. Once you get there, they will declare that you have been cured and that you have been cleansed. Notice their faith. As they went along, they were cleansed. It was in the going that they were healed. They trusted him to lead them. And they found their healing as they obeyed. Now let me stop there, because this is an important principle. There are some of you even here today, some of you who may be watching on live stream this morning, you're in need of healing in some way, spiritually, emotionally, emotionally physically, you're in need of of wholeness that can only come from God, let me encourage you, just obey what the Lord is telling you to do because our healing in life, our wholeness in life comes as we obey the Lord. So often, we even as Christians, we want the healing, we want the wholeness without the obedience. Notice that didn't happen here they would have never been healed had they not obeyed. Had they not had the faith to start walking towards the priest without being healed, they would have never been healed. Some of us need to have faith to just start doing what God has already told us and led us to do. And as we do those things, we will find healing. We will find a wholeness, you see. And that's part, can I just say at this moment, as as relevant as it is of why I have led this church the way I have through this situation, not primarily looking to human beings, no matter who they are, for my direction and guidance, but to the all-sufficient Lord. Because you and I need to get to a place where we might not see it happen yet, but we need to trust that God is leading in that direction, and I need to go in that direction before I see. So many Christians I've heard say, I want to wait and see. That's not faith. Waiting and seeing how things turn out first and then responding is not faith. Faith is hearing God say, go this way, and we go, and then we see. Sorry, I just had to say that. It's sort of relevant right now. But here's the part we need to get to. Then, verse 15, one of them, there were ten, remember? One, when he saw he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell with his face to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him, expressing gratitude. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, I I love this question, weren't there 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Isn't that, I mean, that, that hits you, doesn't it? Was no one found to turn back and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to the man, get up and go your way. Again, notice, your faith has made you well because it was your faith that took your feet towards the priest before I ever healed you. Here in this passage, though, Jesus is also saying, are we living thankfully with gratitude and gratefulness for what God has done for us and is doing for us? Have we stopped and paused? Or are we like the other nine that God has done so much for us and we pray about so much and even when God answers those prayers, do we spend as much time thanking God and praising God and celebrating Him and worshiping Him after the fact that we do before as we keep beseeching Him to do the things that He does? It's something we all need to... Think about. And did you notice something here, too? And I haven't even got to the last one yet. In this chapter that's talking to us about serving God in light of eternity, did you notice that it has nothing to do with what we do? It's all about being, not doing. Because before we do, we need to be. We need to be a certain someone and then do. We cannot reduce our service to just doing acts. It's got to be doing acts to glorify the Lord and to advance his kingdom out of who we are, being. So in a sense, we need to live a life being and a person who's totally reliant and dependent on the Lord. That's the sufficiency part in the first part. Then we need to be content, and we need to be thankful. And it's out of being these things that then we really begin to serve the Lord at a higher level because not only will our service be lifted up and raised up to another level, but those who are watching us serve, will be more positively impacted by watching us serve, more inspired, more motivated, because we're doing it seeing God as our all-sufficient source. They see that we're living and serving because we're content, and we're not always expecting God to do something when we serve and when we live a certain way, and that we're so thankful to God. Our life is filled with worship and praise and celebration and exaltation of who God is because we can never... Truly, thank God for all that he's already done for us. Amen? As I like to remind myself, God is more able to give me blessings than I am to be thankful for them. Let me repeat that. God is more able to give me blessings than I am to be able to... I can never catch up to God. So that's why we just need to live a life of being thankful as that one out of ten did. And then the final one, serving in light of eternity means serving with a sense of urgency. Look at verse 22. Then he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Oh, can I just say, after these last couple months, I'm right there with you, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, come and come quick. I I want to see your kingdom come on this earth. But he says, well, my my people got to be patient because it's all going to happen in my perfect timing. So he says, people will say to you, well, look, there he is, or look, here he is, or, you know. He says, "Don't, don't chase after them. Don't set dates. Don't do all that stuff. For just like the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. It will be unmistakable when he comes back in all his glory. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, notice what he says, though. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage. Right up to the day Noah entered the ark, then the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. People were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, but on the day Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, anyone who is on the roof with his goods in the house must not come down to take them away, and likewise the person in the field must not turn back. Let's stop right there. First of all, this is important. I want to say this out loud, especially because the Bible continues to be attacked. The veracity, the truthfulness, the reality of the Bible continues to be attacked more and more. Do you realize here in this passage that Jesus totally buys the reality of the story of Noah and Lot? They weren't fairy tales. Jesus himself is using these stories in his teaching on the last day. Jesus believed Noah and the flood. Jesus believed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of Lot. And he's using them as an illustration saying, guess what? The people, their hearts, the way they approached life, the way they approached eternity or lack of it, in those days, it's going to be the same when I come back. In both these cases, God gave ample warning and ample time to human beings to get their lives right with Him before judgment came. But people paid no attention, and nothing in their lives really changed. That's why He says, oh, they just went on doing what they normally do. And it's not, did you notice? It's not that they were really doing anything bad. It's just that, their life was just about this life. It was business as usual. Apathy and indifference to eternal things and the things that really mattered, the things of God, weren't there because they were totally consumed with temporal things. They were only consumed with this life and what this life was all about. There was no focus on the bigger picture. And and can I say that one of the things God has revealed to me even through this season that we're going through is that God is using this in history as one of the times I'm going to call one of His dramatic divine disruptions in history. And do you realize that these kind of dramatic divine disruptions from God don't happen very often? If you go back through history, times like this don't happen very often. Why does God allow dramatic, divine disruptions to happen? And why is it that He's allowing it to happen at this time? Two reasons, and they've only always been two primary reasons. One, God is trying to get people's attention. And in that, he's trying to call those that don't believe in him yet to faith in him before it's too late for them. Second, he's trying to wake up his own people. He's trying to get us to see, to get our eyes off of this life and earth as our primary focus and to get our focus and to to live and serve with a sense of urgency that eternity is coming at us like a freight train and we're going to be living in eternity before you and I know it and we better start living for what really matters now because just like the people in Lot and Noah's day they sort of blew off what they were seeing happening around them they sort of weren't tuned in to God and what he was doing and how he was moving and how he was working. It just, every day was just sort of business as usual. And God is saying to his people today, this is no time for business as usual. This is time for the church to get more serious about being the church of God than it ever has been in history. Because I believe that it's very strategic that God has allowed this divine dramatic disruption at this time because I think he's trying to get people's hearts, including his own people, aligned with his before it's too late, before we enter into eternity. And notice what Jesus says in verse 32, one of the shortest and most powerful verses in all the Bible. In relationship to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, he simply says to his followers, remember Lot's wife. And you know the story. She actually followed Lot and the angels out of Sodom. She was so close to being delivered. She was so close, if you will, to salvation and and to a whole different life and a whole different future. She was on her way. And yet, as she went out of the city, the Bible says she stopped. She turned around and she looked longingly, the Bible says in Genesis, at Sodom. What that meant was that her body may have been out of Sodom, but her heart was still there. That that's what she valued. That life was what was most important. This earthly, temporal life that she had back there in Sodom, that's what was most important to her. And because she disobeyed the word of the angel that came from the Lord himself, she was turned into a pillar of salt. And Jesus is simply saying to his people, because this is who he directed this to, remember Lot's wife. What is it that we really value? Where is our heart? Is it it about this life on earth and what we have on earth here? Or are we truly living for eternity and spiritual things in the kingdom of God? Where's our focus? Are we like, like Lot's wife, that our body may be one place, but our heart's another? And then Jesus says this. And this is so relevant, I think, to where again we are right now in this world. He says, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will preserve it. Because why? Because the kingdom of God is totally upside down from the way of the world. So do do you grasp then, my friends, what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, even as a Christian, if I am clinging so tightly to my earthly life, if if I'm trying to hold on to it at all costs and and I'm trying to hold on to what I have here on earth at all costs, he says not only will you lose out on your eternal reward and and where you are in in the eternal kingdom, even as one of my people, you're going to stop living, really living while you're here because you're holding on so tight. He says, the way to really live on earth is to let go of your earthly life and to let go of the things of earth. He says, no, I'm not saying that that means that then your life is over. In fact, he says, that means you'll really start living on earth. You'll really start experiencing the abundant life that I came to give you when you let go of trying to hold on to your earthly life, because As Jesus would say, you you and I can't really hold on to it. One day God's going to call us home and we don't have power to tell God, no, I don't want to go because we shouldn't be living for this life and this earth anyway. One of the Christian biographies that has always been so inspiring to me is the biography of a young man named Jim Elliott who wasn't even 30 years of age when he gave his life to be a missionary to the Alka Indians. And if you know the story of Jim Elliott, you know that he was murdered by those Indians that he went to share the gospel with. And in his diary, he wrote these words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose you see Jim Elliott was like it's not about this life it's about the life to come it's about eternity I'm gonna lay down my life for others I'm gonna just give up my life and let God work through me and if God wants to take me home God will take me home because I'm his And there have been so many lives that have been touched and inspired and motivated by the short life of Jim Elliott because our life isn't measured by how long we live but by what we did with our life while we were here. So many Christians now are like, "Ah, i got to hold on. I I can't do this. I can't do that. It's like, you've stopped living. You've stopped living. Because the only way to really live is to let go of this life and the things of this world, and then you really get things in perspective. I personally think, if I could say this, that that's one of the reasons why in my lifetime, and it really has been in my lifetime, the last 50-plus years, that we continue to see a reduction even in the amount of people, not just young people, people who are willing to enter into ministry and the mission field. Because they have grown up with generations that have made this world and this life and, and everything more important than eternity and eternal life and spiritual things. And so no wonder even young people have very little attraction to giving up their life and going to the mission field or going into ministry. And it continues to be, and I think it will continue to be that way up until Jesus comes. Because we have grown up, even as Christians, more and more captivated and enamored by worldly things than by spiritual and eternal things. And Jesus is simply saying to us if you want to serve me in light of eternity, then your life needs to be reflecting those values each and every day. You need to be living with a sense of urgency. You need to be living for the spiritual and for the eternal, and letting go of your earthly life and earthly temporal things. Because in the end, it's not going to matter. And eternity is coming fast and furious. And all of us are going to be there real soon. So Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Could we stand and pray? Lord, I pray today for all of us that this has been sort of a wake-up call for your people, the church, that God, may we realize eternity is coming very quickly for all of us. And God, this earthly life is is only going to be a few more years on this earth as we know it. And God, I just pray that we would live every day as your people and serve every day, in light of eternity coming, God, that we would serve knowing that you're our all-sufficient God, that we would be content, that we would be thankful, that we would be urgent about our business, that we wouldn't allow, Lord, the, the world's Malaise and stupor to sort of settle in to us as the church and sort of put us to sleep But that we would wake up And realize the times in which we are living And realize God that you have allowed the things that are happening in this world for for Deeper and spiritual and eternal reasons that Lord we need to be sensitive to And if Lord we were ever going to live for you it's Now if we were ever going to live lives that were going to influence and impact other people for the kingdom and for eternity, it's now, God. And so I pray that our hearts would be gripped by the things that really matter, God. Would you take our lives, use them for your glory and honor. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.